Hello, hello, and welcome back to Think Torah. This is Torah Game Changers, and we are a project of the Intentional Jew Podcast Network. You can find us at intentionaljew.com if you have any questions. To be hosted on the network, reach out to me at our own at intentionaljew.com. You can do it straight through the website as well. We started a new series, my father and I, called Around the Shabbos Table. If you have not had a chance to listen to that, you can go back and listen to, there are currently two episodes up. Go hit that. Tell me how Tell me how it sounds. Tell me what's up with it. Tell me what you want to hear. Um, and let's create content. Today, I sit down with the famous Menachem Poznanski of Consciously Fame. And we talk about a lot of cool stuff. He's very wide-ranging, as we as we will discuss. And we talk about how Menachem is authentic and how one can be authentic in everything they do, creating communities around podcasts, and really the ability to create content that you're proud of. So it's some cool topics, and I hope you enjoy. So without further ado, here's Torah Game Changers. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Think Torah. This is another episode of Torah Game Changers, and today I'm here with Menachem Poznanski, who is a fellow Intentional Jew podcast networker. And it's a fascinating story how I met Menachem. Crazy, wonderful story. I picked up the phone, and I called him. And although Menachem said he's not such a joiner, he joined me pretty fast. Maybe it was just my uh, good looks or my oracy skills that just blew him away that he wanted to join us. But anyhow, you can go check him out on intentionaljew.com as well as many other awesome shows. A little background about Menachem is that Menachem is a licensed clinical social worker and an author. He's worked in the field of substance abuse prevention, addiction treatment, and recovery support for over 20 years. Since 2004, he served as the director of The Living Room, a division of Our Place in New York. Menachem has currently two books. He's the co-author of Stepping Out of the Abyss, A Jewish Guide to the Twelve Steps. And he recently published his book, Consciously. Both of these books were published by Mosaica Press. He is also getting out his messages through Facebook, through The Light Revealed, and Consciously, which he constantly is publishing messages about Jewish spirituality. Menachem is also a podcaster of the world-famous Consciously podcast with Menachem Poznanski. And the message here is to highlight the beauty of the daily grind of life. I think it's a very humble space for spiritual expression. I'm fascinated personally by Menachem's ability to fuse Hasidus in the other parts of his life. One of my favorite episodes, or a series of episodes, if you will, is The Lessons from Lucy. I'll link to it in the show notes. Anybody could go and Listen, it's definitely a must-listen. And what I think is so awesome about the Torah there in the lessons from Lucy is that although I don't have a dog and I can't relate to raising a a dog, but it gets me to think in other parts of my life where where is the spirituality and where's the spiritual component there. So it's a really awesome lesson and it's, it's changed a lot of the way I think. So so I hope I got that all right, Menachem. I hope I didn't miss anything there. 
miss anything. I mean, I'm such a complicated person. No, it was great. Thank you. That was very, very kind. So, uh, but uh, what I liked about what you said, which was uh, really meaningful, was um, that, you know, first of all, you talked about my Torah or, or the Torah that I share. And, and, um, and you talked about um, trying to express how spirituality is inherently practical. And it's not really spiritual if it's not practical. Um, and how spirituality is really something that expresses itself throughout all the areas of your life. And if you feel like, or when I felt like personally, that spirituality was only something that was accessible in sacred spaces, um, it was actually, um, it stripped the meaning out of it. So, uh, and, and if that, if that is a message that I have, my Torah, then, then, then that would be, I think something that I would feel positive about owning. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I, I, I liked what you said. Yes. Which is <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Um, it's interesting point you bring and that we're discussing here that, um, when we when we talk about Hasidus in the classic sense, it seems like that only happens in very spiritual in in like holy places or kaddish places, right? Um, that, and although it was it was created for the regular Jew and for the for for the one who goes out um, into the world, but it seems like you're almost recreating those holy places wherever you are, and um, it's not like that in in your Torah in your in your understanding of it. Uh, it's very much with you wherever you go. So it's an interesting. Uh, I mean, to me, that's the the that goes to the core of what the Balshemta was trying to bring into the world. Um, I, I don't know if it's the entirety of it, but the whole. I don't know if you want to like jump into this right now, but but um, but the but in my understanding of it, as far as what I've learned, um, you know, part of the whole idea was you know the the whole idea of hafatzas mayanos, right, which is the spreading of the wellsprings which is comes from a letter that uh, that I've talked about on the podcast, the letter that the Baal Shem Tov wrote to his brother-in-law of Gershom Kittiver, um at, you know, toward the, the end of his life where he said that he ascended he and Elias Neshama into the, the Heichal Mashiach and he approached Mashiach and he asked him, why, why, what are you waiting for? You know, which th- that's my favorite part of that story, by the way, right? The fact that, you know, you meet Mashiach and he says, well, what are you waiting for? We're, we're dying down here, right? And, he, and, and when are you going to come? And Mashiach tells him that when there's a, a spreading forth of your wellsprings, when your teachings spread across the world, right? And this Hafatzas Mayanos is, it goes to the core of the, the system that the Lubavitch Rebbe, um, the most recent Lubavitch Rebbe, you know, drove his agenda that we see now and, and, and how that mushroomed into the outreach kind of aspect of Torah Judaism, which is not exclusive to Chabad now. It's not kind of like mushroomed into the whole of Torah Judaism. Um, that whole idea is about bringing the light of Pneumius Torah, um, the spiritual messages of Torah, to everyone. That the spirituality of Torah, the Pneumius of Torah, is not just for the intellectual elite. It's not just for the base Medrash. It's not just for base HaKnesis. It's not just for Shul. Um, it's for every every moment of your life, Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Summit, right? Which is, means God, God is with me always, always, all the time, everywhere I go, and and that to me goes cuts to the core, you know. Not that whatever my message is cuts to the core of Hasidus, but that's why I think I've tried to develop that message um, because I see that 
as like being most, what the goal is. Would you say that's the most important message? Would I say that it's the most important message? It's the most important. It's been the most important message to me. You know, <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I think part of what my message is, is, you know, just be yourself. You know, in some ways, even this whole podcasting process has been uh, an evolution of, of clarifying my own message. You know, I, I had an idea of what my message was, but I didn't know what it was until I wrote a book. And I didn't know until I started a podcast. I, I would never have known because I, I didn't actually put it out there. But until you put, until you inject light into, until you inject ore into calum, until you inject light into vessels, until you create osios around what you're thinking, then you don't really know. You know, everything remains ethereal and disconnected from the world, right? But so, so, but what I found is, yeah, a message of spirituality that only had God being present when I was in the base, in the base Knesses, when I was, you know, or when I was in the base Medrash, when I was learning or, or when I was performing really well in my Judaism was not sustainable in the sense that I always, I didn't always find myself there. I wasn't always in the base Medrash and I wasn't always feeling right. And if God was only available when I was feeling right, then God was very much not available in my life. And my life was very, very empty. And when I found out that that there was a message that was opposite, I, I was very interested in that. Is that what brought you to Hasidus in general? Um, I mean, what brought me to Hasidus, what was that? What brought me to Hasidus? I like that void of not feeling spiritual everywhere you go. Well, I, I kind of came to a point in my early twenties where I had, I had been learning in Kolel and then I was like working in a few different capacities not as a Rebbe, but I was like, my title was a Rebbe. I was like learning in a, in a second Seder at a high school, kind of learning with the guys that were weaker. And in the mornings I was like an assistant Rebbe with a, uh, you know, a class of kids that are, you know, whatever, like, uh, the kids that didn't fit in the normal class, I guess we could call it resource room, but a lot of those kids were incredibly smart. They were just, you know, they just didn't necessarily thrive in a normal classroom. So it was a lot of that kind of stuff. And, you know, I thought I was going to do something with my life that was important, which meant having success in the arena that I was in, which was like in yeshiva. You know, I thought I was going to like, I knew that I wasn't going to learn forever, but I I thought that I was going to have some kind of success there. And then I woke up at 23 or 24 and I, I wasn't there anymore. I I wasn't living in Israel. I wasn't in yeshiva. I wasn't a Rosh uh, uh, Chabura or whatever, whatever I was doing that was meaningful to me. And, and I, I felt very lost and, and I had thought that my Judaism, my spiritual expression within Judaism was like fixed, was done, was finished. I had figured it out. And then I came to find that whatever spiritual messaging I had did not meet the standard of the life that I was living, you know? So, um, so I, I went looking for more, you know, and it started in Rav Hirsch, right? That was for sure the first space. You know, I, I mentioned that the other, you know, one of the podcasts we have on the the network is, um, is a really, really nice um, podcast about the messages of Shamshim Flor Hirsch and, you know, that his teachings transform my life. And then, you know, the Rav, you know, Rav Yeshever Salvechik and his writings, uh, eventually that led me into um, getting in touch with some people that were kind of connected to Hasidus and they opened the door, Bavavi Mishkanevna, which is what my book consciously is based on was a f- the first book and that was written by somebody who was coming from 
a Punovich yeshiva background. I don't know who the audience is of this podcast. I don't know how much I have to explain things or not. Or we don't know. I guess we'll guess. Um, you know, the language that I was used to speaking, you know. Um, but at the same time, there were teachings of Hasidus, and that led me to Rav Moshe Weinberger, you know. And he, when he told me to learn Tanya, when I was by Rav Weinberger, and I was at, and we were, whenever, I'd, I already had a relationship with him. I was attending a, a Chabura in the mornings for a long time, and we sat down, and we were going over, like, my Seder Halimud, at the time I was in social work school, um, maybe just out of social work school. And, uh, and my whole life had shifted and changed and I was in a totally different lifestyle and life well-being of what I was. And I was also accessing other experiences of spirituality or expressions of spirituality. I got in touch with the 12 step programs cause I was working with people in 12 step programs and that opened my eyes to a whole new universe. Um, books like, uh, spirituality of imperfection, which is written by, um, Oh, what's his name? Uh, his name is escaping me now, but it's, it's a remarkable book. It looks at the spiritual messaging that is existent within the 12 step programs and how those emerge out of the ancient religions, including Judaism. So I was already kind of like, not that I was looking to like step out of Judaism, but I was already kind of like being exposed to other things. And Rav Weinberger said, you need to learn Tanya. Now as a guy coming from like a fairly yeshiva kind of upbringing, even though I, I didn't grow up religious until I was like 11, but still I, I I was educated in the yeshiva system. The idea of learning Hasidus Chabad was like, like that was the last thing I would have thought he would have said to me. Like, I was like, like but what? <laughs> like, are you serious? Like, yeah, you need to learn Tanya. You know, and that opened a whole new universe, like a whole new universe. So, and I found in Hasidus, I don't know if I, I didn't have the experiences that I had previous to that. If I ever would have seen in Hasidus what I saw, but what I saw in Hasidus was something that I had touched on in other areas, except I saw it um, articulated, A, from within the teachings of Yiddishkeit, and, but also like in a way that was beyond anything I'd ever comprehended, like anything I could have ever understood at all. And it changed everything. It changed my whole life. You know? and, then, and now everything I see, I see through the lens of Tanya, right? which is why when I got a dog... You know, I just saw that experience. I mean, my family, you know, Lucy is a, a French bulldog and we got her because my kids have been dying for a dog for years and my wife went to the park and she has a certain affinity for cute, ugly things. And uh, French bulldogs are adorably ugly. And um, and this guy had a French bulldog and she fell in love and then she set out to find one for us. And we got this French bulldog and my kids wanted it. My wife wanted it. And then suddenly it became my responsibility and it dawned on me very early, like I am about to head on a journey of a relationship with a pure Nefesh Bahamas, like an unadulterated Nefesh Bahamas, for those who are familiar with the language of Tanya, but a, an, a material soul in this world. It's not absolute because it's not a human, but like, and that's going to change and transform. And I can, instead of being begrudgingly, taking responsibility for my family's dog because I'm, I want to feel like a good dad, which that's a good thing also. Um, I could use this experience as an opportunity to have a, an entirely fresh and new experience of spiritual messaging that I, that I've been learning for 15 years. And, uh, and it's, it's been amazing. It's really changed everything. You know, it really, I mean, it's, it's given me new eyes for something old. Um, and that's been awesome. And that's kind of, why I wanted to share that and putting that into podcast form has been really meaningful. 
So uh, knowing you a little bit, there's a point that you mentioned, which I've seen, I've seen a lot of people go through this transformation where they've been through the yeshiva system, uh, a more lifish system, a more straightforward and um, less focused on the panemios. And then they get, they get to a place where they fall out from it. And then Hasidus um, reawakens and re- reminds them that where they're, where they're supposed to be. And it, and really what's interesting though, that I've seen the trend is that then they go back um, sort of to the system and they say, you know, can we, how can we change it? And we can, how can we, um, how can we fix the problems? Right. And with thing, although you didn't necessarily mention this, but I know from the book, and I know from your podcast that you very much incorporate um, the Hasidic teaching and now your, you know, your new view on life, which is amazing into your, into your work as well. Right. Um, recovery and an addiction world. And that's interesting to me because most people go back, you know, uh, the other road and the fact that you take it, uh, this road is fascinating. So what, um, maybe you could speak to the, some of the things and the lessons that you've learned from Hasidus now that you can bring back to your, to your practice and to, to helping those in these, uh, in these stages. Okay. So, I mean, what's interesting is that even when I was in that Litvish yeshiva world, I was always very attracted to Musser, Hashkafa, et cetera. I mean, now looking back, like the fact that I was obsessed with Rav Dessler when I was in yeshiva and Rav Dessler is like all Tanya, you know, like I'm saying, it's all there. He not only, he, it's a very, it's a very, it's a, it's an open secret that, you know, Tanya was a, a major part of his, a major influence on him. So it's not, I mean, it was always there all along, you know, at the same time. But, um, but nonetheless, I, I think part of it for me is, you know, when I was 26 years old, I got a job working at the living room. Um, we, we really wasn't working at the living room. I was hired by an organization called Our Place, uh, which has a, a, a number of divisions focused on helping youth. Um, and they had a program that was focused specifically on young people who had gone through substance abuse treatment and who were now out back home and needed support, needed a community. Um, and they had a, one program and that program did well for a while, but ultimately kind of spiraled out. And they came along and they asked me to come in with my friend and colleague, uh, Akira Perlman, and my other friend and colleague, Akito Fulman, was there already working with the women. And they asked me to come on and take take it over and really drive it forward. Um, and I resisted. And uh, one of the, you know, the the executives there, um, who actually, unfortunately, and just to mention him, uh, just to give him the due that, he's, that, he, that he deserves, uh, Rav Yossi Urowitz, actually just passed away this week, which is weird and emotional. Um, he wouldn't take no for an answer. He got in his head that I was the right person for the job and I needed to do this job and he wouldn't take no for an answer. Um, and then I eventually took the job. I took the job. I accepted the role. I was just finishing graduate school. Um, and in the beginning it was just a gig. It was just a job. I mean, I was interested in the population partially because of my personal experience in life, because of what I described earlier, kind of being on a spiritual uh, journey of exploration. Um, but partially because I, I wanted to help people. I wanted to do something interesting. I wanted to make my, uh, mark on the world. Um, but, but really it was just a job, you know, it, it was, it, it was just a job that I was doing, but over time, partially because of the relationships that I built there with the people that I was building and also because of the, 
the remarkable work that we get to do there. Um, and I think anyone that works there will tell you, anyone who's part of it, it's the, the living room is, is, is an organization, but more than that, it's a family and a community. And I, I'm privileged to run the organization of the living room and even more privileged to be a part of the living room family and community. And I, I don't just say that. I, I, I say that all the time, but I really, really mean that. Um, the living room community is, is, is a remarkable, uh, beautiful um, group of people. It's a community of people supporting themselves, supporting each other. Um, and, um, and it just became my mission in life. You know, I, I have a shlichus. I, I could never have used those words before, and I would have been embarrassed before um, more recently to say that in those terms as far as like the implication that it has to the, to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. But I have a shlichus. Like I really do. And I, it's, it's almost like humbling or embarrassing to say, and it seems like self-serving, but like I have a sense of why God sent me to the world. You know, I have my wife and I have my kids and I have the living room and it's why I'm here. So when I encountered Hasidas and it was saying things that I couldn't articulate and it was explaining things that I knew, truths that I knew, but I could never have really grasped it wasn't, I didn't have to try to bring that into my work because it's just me. That's like saying like, I don't know, how do you breathe if like oxygen is so, it's just like, it's part of me. It's just, just my development as a human being. Um, and it was just natural. And I, I don't know, I don't know how that happened. I didn't purposely do that, but part of my, I'm talking about my Torah or my message, you know, um, is, you know, this idea that life's a journey and it's a journey of a development of you. Like, I'm a, I'm a spiritual force, just like everyone is. And that spiritual force will not be fully expressed until I live my full life. And at the end of my life, that force will be created. That's the way I see the world, right? That's the part of how I see the world. And, and whatever it is that I do in my life is kind of like adding to this ethereal sphere of power, of energy, right? And I'm, that's my mission in life. And I got to do that. And so everything I do, I don't, I don't know. I don't want, I don't mean this in kind of like a pretentious way. I don't, I don't mean to, I hope I don't sound pretentious and I don't mean it in like a, like I'm just a regular guy from Cedarhurst, you know, like a knucklehead. And, but at the same time, like this is my journey. I'm living my journey, you know? And like, so I want my life, you know, one of the things I talk about in recovery, in the recovery programs, you know, part of the recovery program is developing a sense of a higher power, building a personal relationship with God and Jewish people that are in recovery, oftentimes what happens is they develop a certain sense of a higher power in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or, or you know, any of the anonymous rooms. And, and then they have their God, they're from Jews, they go to shul, and they have their God that they have in shul. So they have like a God in, in, in the meeting and a God in shul, right? And, and then a certain, and, and certain, t- and then they have a God at home, right? So, and in, in, in certain ways, we all kind of create these compartmentalizations, com- compartmentalizations of our lives and kind of separate these different selves, us. We separate ourselves. We are one person here and one person there and one person there. And that creates a certain dichotomy in our lives and it creates a rupture and it doesn't allow us to be us. And to me, the goal is to try to be me, you know, in, in every area of my life, you know, meaning when I'm the, the, the experience of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, of God, of my higher power that I have when I'm sitting out 
in Cedarhurst Park, which is across the street from my house, watching the sun come up over the town hall there. And I just experience, you know, G.O.D., the great outdoors, like that awesome power of nature. Right. And I just feel so close with reality. And then there's like some, there's a power behind that reality. There's the creator of that reality. And there's the creator of me and it's all one. And, right? and I'm just like feeling God's presence. And then I go to shul and God's some scary guy who's out to get me, who's going to be upset at me if I don't say the words properly. There's something dichotomous about that. But then if I shift my mindset and then like that guy, the guy that wa- I watched the sunset, it's guy, whatever, right? That God, that power that I experience in the park is the same power I'm davening to. And when I can do that, my life is like one. It's unified, right? So that to me has been kind of the process. So it's like my work with people in recovery has informed my understanding of Hasidus and my understanding of Hasidus has informed my work with people in recovery, not because I tried, but because I've tried to be one person and I don't do it perfectly. And I, I'm like, like, but that's been a, a purposeful, um, effort. I've tried to do that. And because I've tried to do that, even though I can be dichotomous and even though I can be full of it, and even though I can, you know, I can be pretentious and all that stuff, but because I'm trying to do that, it's allowed for some of that overlap. I think, I think maybe. It's it's very clear, uh, especially from, from your book, the way you write it in more, um, the, the word choices and sort of the pluralistic kind of, uh, audience you're going for right but you have the teachings of tanya and your teachings of Hasidus all over there right and it's because they're they're one and the same for you as you're trying to uh, make it available to those to those people and have it um be mashpia if you will on that and that's uh that's cool i i thought that was a fascinating place to take it Uh, i haven't i I don't see that very often so so it's interesting that that part i was just talking to Shmaya Hanukman, who's my, yeah, sorry. That, I didn't mean to cheapen the experience of understanding Hasidus and then, you know, that wasn't the point, but... I, no, 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 I don't, I don't say it's cheapened at all. You've seen that before. What's that? You've, you've seen where people take it and they sort of, um, they don't bring it, they don't make it one with everything, they just think that there's something missing. Is that what you were talking about? Or? Yeah, 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 I mean, well, I think that it's, it's, it's vulnerable to be yourself, and it's much easier to kind of like conceptual, um, intellectualize things. You know, it's very, very easy to conceptualize Hasidus. Like very, very easy, particularly Chabad Hasidus. It's very easy to kind of keep yourself separate from it because it doesn't force you to, to be vulnerable. You know, and that I can kind of give credit to the recovery world because like in the recovery world, if you're not being honest about who you are, you're not worth anything. The most, the most esteemable thing you can do in the world of recovery is be real. Like that's what's admired most. The more real you are, the more you're admired. So I've been like thrown into the universe of recovery and like that's where you get your props. You know, so like there's a there's an inherent motivation to be authentically yourself because that's what's going to be respected most. And and that kind of plays itself out, I think, um, from within Hasidus. And then I think that's where Hasidus is kind of most powerful. What's interesting that I was going to say about the point that you made about the book and talking about the we and now it's a really, I see it as a a parallel process with the, with the reader Um, in a certain way. I'm a reader, um, but also it's meant to be pluralistic in the sense of being applicable to anybody. 
And, and one of the things that I realized, originally I wrote the book because that way for a variety of reasons, but one of the big reasons was my first book was very, very niche. The first book I wrote, Stepping Into the Abyss, was about recovery for Jewish people. It's a very, very like niche book. It's, it's anyone I think can enjoy it, right? But it, it was written for uh, rabbis, therapists, family members of people in recovery to help better them, help them understand recovery, right? So they could work with people in recovery, help people in recovery. That's why it was written. And also, I guess, in, in some ways, for people in recovery uh, themselves. But it's not really for people in recovery, per se, because there's nothing in that book that you can't find in the rooms of recovery. Um, but my grandfather said, like, your first book was very niche. You need to you need to write something that's for more people. So, so I took that as a kind of a marching order. And actually, I dedicated the book to his memory. He passed away while I was writing it. And I had made in my mind that I was going to take that as marching orders. So I wrote the book as pluralistic and broad as possible. But one of the things that happened when I when I did that was that it dawned on me was that if I can't explain this in a pluralistic, in a, a way that can be absorbed by anybody, then I don't really understand it. If I can only explain something to somebody in language that you and I know and then no one else can really get it, then I don't really know it. And it forced me to like, shift my awareness of the ideas and to, and it, I taught, I learned so much from that experience. I had in mind, I was telling my friend, I have a couple friends that I really admire who are incredibly spiritual people. And this for a very affiliated person is going to sound incredibly absurd and it's not absurd at all. Um, I have some very, very close friends that are incredibly spiritual people that are atheists, like avowed atheists. They really don't believe in God. And I've learned more from them about God than almost anybody else. Um, and I had one of them particularly in mind while I was writing the book because I, I was like, if he can't read this, not that he's going to like it because it's about building a relationship with God, but if he can't read this, then I will let him not done my job. And, and, uh, and, and it, it changed everything. Like that changed everything. Like my most powerful experience of God was when I was talking to one of my friends, this guy, he's a, he's a, a tile guy. He does tile. He's an Italian guy. He's a tile guy. He's in the recovery world. I encountered him and uh, I met him through the work that I do. And then he did tile work. So he did work in my house. He did a bunch of work in my house. Um, and then we became friends. We played chess. He's an incredibly intelligent guy and he's an atheist. And we were having like a, a friendly discussion debate one day about the existence of God. And it hit me how little we disagreed. Like the point of disagreement, and this is for something that's coming from yeshiva background, like when you're like dissecting a Gemara and like when you're doing it properly, you're, you're pulling apart the machlokas, you're putting apart the, dis, the discrepancy of opinion to such a degree that you truly come to the point of dis, dis, disagreement. And the realization is that you agree on everything else except for this point. And then all of the disagreements that emerge, emerge from that one single point. And I realized how little we disagreed on. And it, it allowed me to experience God in such a powerful way. Because the only point of disagreement was like, like whether that power that triggered all of reality had an opinion and cared about me personally. And we agree on everything else after that. Like everything. There was nothing we disagreed upon. I mean, there were things that later manifested, but they all manifested from that point. Right? And then that like taught me something so powerful about who it is that I'm building a relationship with. The manifester, the original source of that original spark that triggered all of reality who cares about me 
and the leap of faith that he or it or whatever cares about my individual life and how like powerful that is and how meaningful that is. Like it almost makes me want to cry. Like me, little old me, little knucklehead me who sits in Cedars Park with Lucy. Like, why do you care about me? There's a lot more important things going on in the universe than me. When you think about the greatness of reality, you know, and it's like, yes, yes, he does. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> that's a big deal. Wow. That's pretty cool. So I don't even know where we started, but that's, I guess that's where that marriage of all these ideas kind of came together was my experience of those. Cool. And so obviously that's part of the, uh, the message you're trying to get out. And I would love to speak to the difference between writing a book and the podcast. I I'm obviously fascinated by, I love audio and I love the podcast mm-hmm. um, I, well, but I think that it's an important, a very important place to be um, in terms of spreading your, your, I call it your Torah and your ideas and these messages of being real and being you um, and your experiences, which are much, I think they, they affect me in a much deeper way than a book because you hear the processes behind uh, behind this and you hear the stories and you hear the, the understanding of how you came to this. Right. So I wonder for you though, that that's engaged in both how you, um, how you view that both writing a book and both, both the podcasts, are they different for you in this process of spreading are the same? Yeah. Yeah. I think they are, they're very different and they're, they're similar, but they're very, very different. I think that, um, you know, when you write a book, you have so much more time to get the message exactly the way you want it to be. Um, and that's very, very powerful. Like there's so much there. If you're writing properly, like you're, what you're trying to say is a lot, you know, like if you're really, really, I think when a book, when a book is done right, someone can read it more than once and get different things from it, depending on where their life is, right? Because you're like embedding something that's even bigger than your understanding of it. When you're doing something from an audio perspective, you're sharing yourself with the audience in a way that's very, very different. I guess like what I'm trying to say is, can I use like a, a Kabbalistic or Hasidic analogy? So this is is or. This is all light, un, unstructured. It's without Kalim. It's me sharing my or, speaking my truth to you. It's very, very powerful. It's very intense. But there's something ethereal about it. Writing a book is creating Kalim. Because the I don't know what the experience that the reader is going to have. And I don't have their... Uh, their life experience. They're going to take something out of that that's very, very um, different than what I put in. So it's like their or in that Kalim. I, I was thinking about ors and Kalim this morning, so I'm kind of thinking about it in that way. But I, And I don't think it's absolute because it's definitely Kalim in a podcast. But like, it's very fixed. Like, I'm just telling you what I think, you know? Like, unless, you, unless you're going to sit and really dissect and listen to what I have to say 10 times, and then really absorb it at your, but you're just receiving from me the ore that I'm providing, right? That I'm giving and I'm, and you do that with, with that, what you will. Um, and there's something beautiful about that and wonderful and amazing. And it's been a really powerful experience for me that I've enjoyed more than I thought I would. The journey of it, as opposed to like the, as opposed to like the, the thrill of being heard, the journey of 
trying to create, of being a creator of content has been more, way more meaningful than I ever thought it would be. Um, but when you write a book, putting something down into words leaves it in posterity in a way that is much more vulnerable because the reader can take it any way they want. And yeah, <laughs> it's a, like a little bit like scary, you know? Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. So it was, it was much scarier. This is particularly much scarier because for a variety of reasons, but, um, the book, cause like, I don't I don't know. What if they throw me in hair? I don't, I don't know. Like I have this like annoying fear that they're going to like burn my books. Right. Which is, I guess a good thing. If they burn my books, it'll, I'll have accomplished something. So <laughs> I'll, I'll interview you again. If they, burn <laughs> if they burn your books, that means you got somewhere. Right. So, but, but part of it, that process, that was like, there was a lot of insecurity around that. Joey really, Joey Rosenfeld really helped a lot with that. Um, having his kind of stamp of approval, him telling me like, this is, this is okay. Menachem was like incredibly important. Um, because like, it, it was very intense. Like, I, like I'm, I'm putting myself out there. Like, um, and even with that, I felt like I, I had to, I didn't feel like, um, like I enjoy doing this podcast but I, I don't feel my podcast. I'm enjoying being on your podcast also dominating the airways, but it's something I'm doing. It's meaningful. It's positive, but like, I didn't feel like I had a choice in writing this book. I'm like more of a servant to it than it is a servant to me. If that makes sense. That's it's more vulnerable when you put out a book, you're just putting it out there. I mean, listen, when you're talking, it's, it's more vulnerable. It's, it's vulnerable in different ways. I think. Yeah, I, that's what I think. I, I'm like, every time I record a podcast and put it out there, I'm like, <sighs> what's, what are they going to, or, or what's my wife and every person that listens to it? Like, what are they going to say? Right. Uh, and then you get, I guess you get over that, but it's, um, there's a very vulnerable, unedited kind of feeling you put out there. Yeah, it's courageous. It's extremely courageous. Well, that's kind of what I was saying. Like, it's, it's more courageous to put out the podcast, the book I've like, there's so many editorial layers to it. You know, as much as it was anxiety provoking, so it's like very, very powerful, but I had the safety and security of Joey being a content editor and Mosaic doing an amazing job what they did and Rev Weinberger reviewing it, and Rabbi, Gold, uh, Rabbi Goldberg reviewing it, you know, and I could go over it, I rewrote it, you rewrite it three or four times before a book comes out because you write it and then the editor, right? so you're going over it again and again and again. So like there's a certain measure of control over it that you have with this it's like, I mean, you could have that much control, but you'd never get anything out there. You know, if you want to be putting out content on a regular basis, you just like throw yourself out there. And if you guys like me good. And if you don't, I'll go back and hide in my hole. Like there's something very vulnerable and courageous about that. Well, let's, let's speak to that for a second. The, um, unedited, just, you know, my thoughts, not, not gone through any process. What, how do you think that's important in terms of like Jewish thought? Um, and Torah thought, this is obviously going to be a space that's going to be dominated by soon, hopefully by intentional Jew and the podcasts on the on the network. But yeah, it's open, you know, it's an open it's an open platform. And where do you where do you how do you see that affecting um, the firm world, the Jewish world, the Torah world? Mm. I mean, I think it's the the podcasting is is I think a really positive part of a general um, movement that's going on in the universe. 
right? What starts with Facebook and Twitter is probably the most prominent, um, you know, like, uh, you know, everyone's 15 minutes of fame, you know, and, and, you know, the, the opportunity, um, for every person in the world to share their message, um, I think is really, really powerful. It goes to the core. I mean, if you want to get into Hasidus, as far as I see it, I mean, you talk about what happened in our universe in the middle of the 18th century, um, which is not exclusive to the Jewish world, though I, I, I believe that it emerged from the Jewish world. When you think about the Ramchal and the Grah and the Baal Shem Tev and everything changed. The Enlightenment, I mean, everything that occurred, Scottish Enlightenment, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, I'm saying everything changed. Uh, technological revolution, everything changed um, from that point. So, and and part of the message of Hasidus and Pneumius Torah is the inherent individual value of each person and the inherent individual value of each person's individual message to give over. And where that's manifested through the annals of history is Facebook, where everyone's uh, suddenly a political commentator and, and, and Twitter, like where everyone's getting their news from memes and all, all the all that stuff. And podcasting has been a really interesting re, um, emergence because it gives people... Um, real opportunity to share a message with others, you know, and it used to be, you know, sometimes I, I talked about this a few episodes ago, like sometimes it feels like I'm playing disc jockey, like I'm like pretending to be Don Imus because like I'm putting out a podcast and a hundred people listen or 150 people listen to it. And it's like silly. Um, and that's just playing out a fantasy, you know, like it'd be nice to be on radio. Um, but, but what I found is, is that podcasting doesn't have to just be that. You know, podcasting can be all of us playing, you know, Sean Hannity, right? Or whatever, whatever, you know, Rush Limbaugh, whatever it is that you want, you know, on-air commentator. Um, or it can be an opportunity for people to develop creatively their message and put it out for the people that can benefit from it as an affirmation of the reality that we do each have our own Torah. You know, we do have each our own message, and that message is valuable to whoever it's valuable. And if a hundred people listen, a hundred people listen. And if a thousand people listen, a thousand people listen. Um, and then the idea that it doesn't even matter whether anybody listens. The fact that I'm doing that is meaningful. So I think, you know, as, and I think this is, this goes to, I think why I was so willing to jump on to what you're doing on the Intentional Jew Podcasting Network is because, you know, I think that, the way that Jews originally, you know, initially engage podcasting is, okay, so this is just another platform to place Shirim on. We have a Meaningful Minute and we have Yu Torah and we have, you know, platforms that Rabbanim can promote their Shirim, which is great. It's fine. All these Rabbanim that have their podcasts and they're available and it's, it's easy. It's more easy to access them, to access them. But what I think it does is that it creates a medium for creative people to be able to transmit messages that are not going to be heard by people that are not going to listen to those shiurim. It's more than just a medium to like get shiurim on the internet. It's a medium where people now that have messages can give over those messages and people can, can encounter them. And I think that that's really um, an important thing. I think it's a good thing. Um, you know, whether it's a good thing for people to have to subject themselves to my knuckleheaded message, I don't, I don't know. I think we'll find out. Um, but, 
but I think sure. it's a, I think it's a good thing that that exists, and I think it's going to as more people figure that out. I think figured out what you figured out more than anybody. I think you articulated it to me way earlier than I understood it. Um, as people figure that out, I think you're going to see much more um, adaptation going on, and you and and I think that the content is is much richer. You know, uh, I, I think that um, I'm the, not trying like a mission. Of, I'm not trying to democratize and make, which is a good point. You're saying almost the fear of it that people now gives you know sort of like the blogs of its time, and now every every person can say as they wish and now become a posek. At least in the religious world, that's what happens, and everyone becomes a posek and a right. commentator. And uh, and that's a that's that's a fear, but uh, it's a it's also if you can strike the balance and allow people to express their own Torah and their own personal uh, experiences, then, then yeah, then you've, then you've created something good, but uh, it's that balance that I, that I aim for. Right. So I, 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 you know, it was a, I was reading, I'm, I have this like obsession with Abraham Lincoln. So, so uh, it's just like one of these, he's, Abraham Lincoln's remarkable. So um, one of the things that struck me when I was reading one of the histories, one of the biographies of Lincoln, it was talking about the way in which he developed his oratory skills through going to the local pub and people would kind of take turns getting up on a soapbox. That's where the, the saying comes from. And they would speak. They would kind of prepare speeches, which is no different than what we're doing on a podcast, right? They would get up. The community was smaller. There was more of a sense of connection and people would get together and they, they didn't have TV to watch. They didn't, have, they didn't have ways to entertain themselves. So one of the ways they would entertain themselves is getting together in the town square, getting together in the pub, and then people would take turns giving speeches about what they felt was important. And Lincoln developed his voice by doing that. And this is what that, that particular biography um, was talking about, the way in which he harnessed that to develop his oratory skills that led to him being uh, the president of the United States without that many qualifications. I mean, he was a, he was a congressman, he ran for senator, you know, but he gained fame through the, the Lincoln Douglas debates through being an or, or, or orator and obviously his clarity of thought and his moral, his moral compass, et cetera, et cetera. Now in a universe where we don't have a soapbox to get on, you know, that doesn't allow us to develop our thoughts. doesn't allow us to transmit those thoughts. We don't have a public square to come to. And Facebook as a public square, not to, to push out, not to like kill Facebook. That's not my intention. But like the, the Twitter expression of it or the Facebook expression of it is not as meaningful because we are speaking beings. As the opportunity to develop my thoughts and speak them to people. And then whoever wants to listen can listen. And from speaking them out, I develop those thoughts. And from speaking them out, I get to share them with other people. So I think that the podcasts are the new soapbox of the twenty of the of the next of the twenty first century. That's what that's what I think, and that's I think that's a good thing. I think that's an arena that was removed from the world after the nineteen seventies, right? And it was it it stripped away the idea of community, and now we're kind of we're reopening that expression. Yeah, it's fascinating that you need we needed Twitter. Um, we almost needed Twitter and Facebook in order to see what um, not genuine sort of expression was. And this 
false picture that we create. And then in order to get the podcast, because some of the, some of the most famous like influencers, which you only see parts of them on YouTube and parts of them on their social media channels that then have these podcasts, which you learn just so much about them because it's such a vulnerable place. Um, and I think within Torah, it should be the same way that we can allow, it's not only for non-Rabbanim. I want Rabbanim also to be on there, but I want them to be on there in, in the right way and on in the, in the way the platform speaks. Um, and I want them to be able to express if a Rav can go and express his uniqueness and his, his like personal Torah and his experiences on a podcast, then, then I've won um, because it's, it's great experiences from a great mind, from great perspective uh, in this delivered in this way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's people moving away from the intellectualization of ideas toward the, exp- the, the sharing of self, which I, which I think is important. All right. So part of what I'm trying to do is I'm want to people, I want people, I want to speak to people who, um, maybe have ideas and have thoughts, but haven't reached that stage of vulnerability and haven't reached that stage of, uh, the ability to record. So if you have any tips, whether it be, you know, philosophical or just practical tips for anybody who wants to get into this space, uh, you could, sh- uh, we would love if you could share that. Um, so it's, it's not rocket science, but really just jumping in, you know, you and I were talking about that before. Like, you know, I think it's important to practice. Uh, I think that was really important for me when I started this, like I recorded a number of episodes before I published any of them. And if you look back at my podcast, you know, the, the, the earlier episodes were more crude. And as I can move along, they're getting, I think, better and better. And I'm learning more and more about what I want it to look like. Um, also, that has to do with feedback from audience, you know, hearing what people want to hear and how they want to hear it, I, I think is important, not so much in terms of messaging, but like how it can be. Like yesterday, I was talking to a guy and he said something very powerful to me. He said, um, you know, I really enjoy your podcast, but I particularly find myself listening to the ones that are not more than 25 minutes because I don't have time, you know? And then it's like, well, maybe, I mean, some of the things I do are interviews, so the interviews are going to be longer than 25 minutes. But I was like, well, maybe I'm asking people too much. My audience more than asking them to listen for more than 25 minutes to an idea is problematic. They don't have time for it. It's a tough world. And you know, that, that struck me and it challenged me because I really, every episode, every type of every episode or every topic that I covered can be covered in 20 minutes. You know, if I'm, if I'm tight about it and if I need to do two episodes, I can do two episodes. But that, that was an interesting thing that just happened like yesterday. Um, but, but part of what happened in the beginning was like, I, I, you know, got a microphone and I got a roadcaster and I started recording episodes and then I listened to them as uncomfortable it was to listen to them. And I tried to figure out what was working, what wasn't working, what was the dynamic, what was the not dynamic, and what was good and what wasn't good. And I didn't plan to do, I didn't plan to do that. It's just that the earlier episodes were so insane. I I wasn't going to like put them out there. Um, But then I realized what was going on. And now I've kind of worked on, I'm working on a couple other things that hopefully will be released as a podcast. I'm working on something called Practically, if I bring in with a mashpi of mine, Mayor Prager, and we're going to talk about themes in Tanya. And when we started, I was like, you know, Mayor, because I was new, I had been doing this. He's new to the to the to the to the, to the platform, and I was like, we're going to do this and record it, and never plan to release it like ten times before we ever start recording. And he, there was like a resistance there. It's like a big waste of time. 
you know, but I said, if we don't do that from what I'd learned. So that was a big thing, you know, then it's never going to work. So thing with my, uh, with my dad, I wanted to start a podcast with him and, and I just said, let's get out 10, just do it. And they'll never be released. Right. Same, same thing. Cause you need the reps. You need to get comfortable. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that was really, really powerful. Um, also just being willing, but then also being willing to put things out that aren't perfect. You know, like, um, you're doing the best I can. I laugh at myself sometimes. Like I leave <laughs> in post-production, I leave it in because I'm like, if I enjoy that, like I want someone to laugh at me. It's funny. You know, I can't believe I made that mistake. So, right. right. So I, I, I think it's just like, like, you know, like it's just a journey. And also like, I, I think that part of my experience is something I touched on earlier. Like life's a journey, like making a podcast, you know, don't get so lost in what the audience going is going to receive. Um, focus more in on your own journey of becoming more and more excellent at this. And it's going to force you to grow. And it's different than giving a class. It's very, very different than giving a class. And it's different than, um, than just talking off the cuff. I mean, you could do it and just talk off the cuff, but like if you're doing it in a way that's engaging, it's going to challenge you. And the challenge is good. Like lean into the challenge. Um, cause it will force you to, um, to, to grow and evolve. It will reveal creativity that you wouldn't have known was there. Uh, you know, on my, on one of the social media platforms that we're working on called the light revealed, um, you know, I've been doing, I started during Corona. I was doing, we were doing like random posts a couple times a week. There were some, some that I wrote, some were like quotes from other people. We were just playing around and then Corona hit and I just started like doing posts. We did them every day at first and now we're doing them three times a week. Um, and I'm responsible to provide short form posts of spiritual reflections three times a week. I don't hit it every week, but it has challenged me, you know, to do that. And that's been incredibly meaningful. And then it's like, I don't know if anyone's getting anything out of this, but I'm not stopping because I'm getting so much from it. And I don't mean that in a selfish way. It's just like, this is, I'm like, this is where God wants me to be. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to grow from it. Content you were able to create. And that's, yeah. So that's kind of like, so it's like owning that, like own the journey, you know, like it's going to be okay. Like it's, you know, whatever happens, happens. Like don't, another thing I learned in the living room and in my personal career is like letting go of the outcome. Like just put good things out there and good things will come, you know, when you're always worried about, you know, like the payoff, it usually gets in the way. You know, if you put good things out there now, I don't know if that always works out in the dollar and cents, but it's worked out for me. That's been my experience. You know, if I put good things out there, the right things come along. Um, and, and that's helped me to, to step away and to be removed from a lot of the anxiety that can come along with doing something like this. Cool. That's a great, that's a great tip. Uh, I like that little more macro. Um, if people want to, if people want to find you, where can they, where can they find you? So social media, uh, could plug those. Oh, cool. Thank you. So, uh, on, on Facebook and, uh, Instagram, we have uh, consciously 62 is for the podcast and, um, the light revealed, uh, that simple is on uh, Instagram and Facebook. Facebook has been getting more than Instagram, but, uh, but we're putting them on there and we got those posts and I, I hope they're meaningful for people. I've had some good feedback and I, you know, I hope you enjoy those. Um, also, um, on any of the podcasting on the intentional Jew podcasting network website, intentionaljew.com. Uh, you can find the podcast, but also Apple and all that stuff, uh, Spotify, all those things. 
And, um, and then also the new book, um, is available on, um, Mosaic is a website. It's also on Amazon and in Jewish bookstores, consciously six steps to a vibrant relationship with God. Um, it's, it's really good. It's really, I have to tell you, it's really, it's really a good book. I just read it through it recently. It's, I'm really, I feel really good about that. Um, the first book I wrote, I felt good about it. Like I felt like I can, I don't feel like when I say that I'm promoting myself, I feel like I was, I had the privilege to work on a project. Uh, and like I said, I'm, I'm a servant of it and it being a servant of me. And, and I'm, I'm really proud of the, the book. And I think it's, it, it, it focuses on, um, presenting a program of action that can help a person build a vibrant conscious relationship with God. And it doesn't necessarily teach you how to be, uh, you know, a Kabbalist who can, you know, fly on carpets or uh, heal the sick, um, or anything like that. It's nothing like that. It's just like, um, you know, for those of my fellow journeyers through life who are just knuckleheads trying to do the best we can one day at a time, it's like, how can I really live vibrantly with my creator? And it presents a program that I found in the, the Safer Bhavavi Mishkan Evna. And then I took that and I tried to adapt it to make it as available to as many people as possible um, through the lens of Hasidus and through the lens of my work with people in recovery and as a psychotherapist. And uh, it's concrete. There's like 10 uh, concrete exercises that you can bring to the table that are mindfulness oriented. Um, and it's, it's weird, but I actually have a relationship with God I never thought I could have. Uh, and it's meaningful. And it's nothing like I ever imagined. Way less ecstatic and way, way better. Um, so uh, it's out there. It's in the stores and it's online. Mosaica.com and Amazon. Um, so go check it out. That's where you can find me. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, brother. All right. All right. Thank you for joining us on Torah Game Changers. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Stay tuned for more Torah Game Changers and more Around the Shabbos Table. As always, find us on intentionaljew.com. Just remember, rock on.